For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The past couple of weeks, here's what we've been talking about. Uh, the first, we have six gospel applications in these verses that deal with suffering and how the Holy Spirit helps us with suffering. The first of which is that suffering will confuse and crush us when separated or experienced apart from the gospel. It's so critical for us to know as we go into a time of suffering and believe and appropriate the first half of Romans chapter 8, which we, me and Randy talked about over three messages, and that's the idea of acceptance. If you're not believing and appropriating that you are accepted in Jesus Christ, that your identity is in Christ, that you're not under the condemning wrath of our Heavenly Father, when suffering comes into your life, it will confuse and crush you. It's so important for us to experience suffering from the posture of someone who believes and relies upon God's verdict that we are his sons and his daughters. We are not slaves. We are not under condemnation. Secondly, we noted that all of creation, including believers, suffer as a result of the fall. Suffering is an inevitable part of life. None of us are going to escape it. Creation itself does not escape it as it groans under the, the, the consequences of the fall. And you and I as individual human beings, we're all going to suffer because sin enters the world through the fall. Thirdly, our response to suffering is we must compare it to the glory that God promises to give us one day. We saw this in various passages, but to, to get through suffering in those times of difficulty, the Apostle Paul in numerous places encourages us to fix our eyes upon the promised glory that we find in Jesus Christ right now and that ultimate glory that we're going to have when he fully redeems us. Now we can go through times of suffering when we know that this is not the end of our story, that it's just an important step in our story to become who God wants us to be. And then last week, we looked at the fourth, the fourth application got its own week because of the complexity of this subject. And often so many have questions that if God is good, how can he allow this kind of suffering to take place? 
And so the fourth application simply says that God is sovereign over all suffering, and through it, he brings about his glorious plan. We, we, we stopped for a few moments, and we reviewed what does it mean for God to be sovereign? And, and of course, it means that he owns everything in the universe. He created it all. Everything belongs to him, including our lives. And not only does he own it, and it belongs to him, he rules over it as a king, an all-powerful, all-knowing king. And so nothing occurs in our life that catches God by surprise. He's so sovereign and so in control. The scriptures tell us that even when the, the dice are thrown in a casino in America or in our world, it is God who's determining the numbers that come up. God is so sovereign that he knows the hairs, the number of the hairs on your head, and even the sp insignificant sparrows, Jesus say, that the least of all the birds do not fall to their death in the darkest forest of our world without God being in control of that event. Now, the implications of that is huge, right? They're huge. Because God is sovereign, he controls all aspects of our suffering. Nothing is in coming into our lives that is not in some way under God's control. It's also through suffering that we begin to understand the goodness and love of God for us. All of us have parents, and you know, many of us have experienced this, this uh, common reality that as we grow older and we experience more of life, in fact, as we experience things that our parents experienced, and we now realize that in hindsight, that this is what our parents were dealing with. This is what our parents were going through. This is how our parents sacrificed to love us. As we ourselves go through that, perhaps as parents, or we see it, our love and our appreciation for our parents grows. You know, we have this idea that, you know, it's like, you know, when I got to be around 25 or 30, my parents got awfully smart and wise, right? And when you're teenagers, you don't think, but when you begin to live more of life, you can relate to what they're going through and you can appreciate it. You can appreciate their love more because you now have your own family that you're loving for. So in the same way, we look at our heavenly father. And if we want to understand and know and comprehend the goodness and love of God, we have to go through suffering because the ultimate way that God has demonstrated his love and his goodness towards us is through suffering. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit demonstrated the depth and the breadth of their love for us when Christ went to the cross. That incredibly pivotal moment that involves such deep suffering from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communicates to us their love. How do we appreciate that? It happens through us suffering that we begin to understand how loved we are by God. And then finally, what we looked at last week, because God is sovereign, he promises to redeem all of our suffering, turn it into something that is for our good and for his, the glory of his kingdom. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is a passage I didn't read to you last week because of time, so I'm including it in this week, right? He, he gives us a good example of this. He says, uh, at, in verses 3, he begins to talk about suffering and how important suffering is and the comfort of God, how much that is needed and how we experience it in suffering. And then he concludes with this example. 
He says, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, and hear how God redeemed this suffering in his life, we stopped relying on ourselves, and we learned to rely upon God who raises the dead. This is just one example of many kinds of ways that God ultimately redeems our suffering. So this week, we're going to conclude our study of this passage of Romans that centers on suffering by looking at the final two applications. So before we do, how about I pray for us, and then we'll jump right into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word to see what it says in relation to this topic of suffering. God, uh, many in our church are suffering this morning. Our church is suffering this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace that we need to rely upon you, to rest in your goodness, to, to establish ourselves on the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ and to rely upon that identity. God, give us the grace that we need to accept your sovereign control over our suffering and our tribulations and trials. Give us hearts that are, are willing to bend and listen and learn and see what it is that you're doing in our life or the life of someone else. Father, I pray for some specifically this morning. Lord, we continue to lift Jared Honigman up to you, and we ask that you would touch his body. We thank you for the miraculous way you're bringing him back. And Father, we pray that you would continue to work through the hands of the therapists and doctors, and we would see this young man restored to full health. And Father, on the other end of the spectrum, we, we, our hearts and our minds are, are with Bruce Hahn and, and the whole family, Lord, as he is in hospice. And, and God, we know that he is confident of where his destiny. And Lord, we thank you for his testimony through this time of suffering, how he is resting and relying upon you. And would you reveal yourself to him in these final days and weeks or months, however long you have determined, would you reveal yourself to him in fresh ways, new ways, so that he gets a, just a taste of us waiting for him in eternity. God, would you be with me this morning? Would you speak through me? Would you remove me and fill me with your power so that those who are here this morning who need to hear from you, hear from you. And Lord, would you prepare these hearts and the ears of those who listen. May we be ready to receive the word this morning. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, fifth of our sixth application, right? God will end all suffering when he completes his redemptive plan. He says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, and here Paul stops for a moment, or now he shifts his focus. He's been talking about creation as a whole, and now he zeroes in on the new creation, God's new creation, his church. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. God is going to end all suffering when he completes his redemptive plan. You know, we, right now, the scriptures tell us we groan with creation. Why is this the case? We saw in chapter 7 that in part, it's because of our ongoing battle with the sin nature. We're fighting that indwelling sin, and it creates tension and strife in our lives. But we also groan, as we saw in the previous application, because of the effects of sin upon our bodies and upon creation as a whole. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, and this is a passage I mentioned, I prayed for Bruce a few moments ago, a passage that I read to him a few weeks back as he's dealing with this portion and stage of his life. The Apostle Paul says that we grow weary in our present bodies. We long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. We groan with all of creation because our salvation is only half completed. Next week, we're going to dig into a verse that gives uh, many Christians a lot of heartburn, okay? Because of one particular word in verse 30, then people get really riled up. So next week should be pretty interesting, to say the least, all right? But I want to turn to it for just a moment because it's instructive in this idea that our salvation is only half completed. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says this, those whom God has predestined, there's the word that everybody's knickers getting a wad over, right? Those who he's predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What we see in this verse is that we are in between the steps that are laid out in this chain of salvation, right? We are in between justification and glorification. We are experiencing essentially the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God, that dynamic, you know? Jesus came and he inaugurated the kingdom of God. It's here, it's present, but it's not yet seen as true fulfillment. It's not yet been consummated. And the same thing is true for us. Our salvation, it's come. We know what our eternal destiny is. It's been inaugurated, but it's not yet been fully realized. And so these verses here, they give us four important truths that we need to get a hold of as we live in this in-between stage waiting for the completion of our salvation. The first thing we need to realize is in verse 23 that God gives us the Holy Spirit as the guarantee and foretaste of what he has in store for us. In verse 23, he uses the phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit. This is common for the Apostle Paul, right? He uses agricultural and business analogies on a regular basis. And here, this word foretaste is going to definitely resonate with the Jewish portion of, his, of the, letter to the, book of, to the letter to the Romans. Because every year uh, at the festival of the, the Feast of Weeks, the, the Jews would come together and they would bring the first fruits of the harvest. 
The harvest would begin, they would gather the first portion of it, they would bring it to the temple, and they would worship God, and they would celebrate His goodness. This festival was serving kind of as a, as a pledge that God was going to fulfill the rest of the harvest and that they would have the food that they needed to survive for the upcoming year. This Feast of Weeks in Acts chapter 2 we know as Pentecost. It was at the Feast of Weeks at Pentecost that God gave the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the Spirit. You know, a few moments ago, I, I quoted from 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 4. Verse 5, right after, is instructive on this. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. God, who has prepared us, he has, who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is the idea that Paul is getting at here, right? We have been given the Holy Spirit as a foretaste, as a pledge, as a promise from God to us that he is going to bring to completion the good work that he's begun. Second truth, one day Christ will return and our adoption as God's children will be fully revealed and completed. He says in verse 23 that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Again, already and not yet, we have been declared adopted by God. We are his sons and his daughters. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Randy brought this beautiful truth to us several weeks back in verse 15 and 16 and 17, right? But yet we've not yet fully uh, perceived and realized what God has declared about us. That's coming in the future. We're already, but not yet. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, he tells us what that day is going to be like. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There's coming a day, he says, hold on to this truth, hold on to this hope, when, Je when Jesus is going to return. And on that day, we're going to see him in all of his resurrection glory, the glory that he's had with the Father since the beginning. And the promise is that we are going to be raised and transformed and revealed with that same glory as God's sons and daughters and here's the good news on that day, third truth, that when Jesus comes and reveals us as the adopted sons and daughters of God, of God, God is going to give us new bodies that are free from our present weaknesses and sin. In verse 23, he says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And what's the next phrase? The redemption of our bodies. This is not just some spiritual exercise. There is a literal, physical component to what this is going to look like one day. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the trumpet's going to sound, and we, the dead, are going to be raised incorruptible. Why? Because we're going to be all changed. The corruptible must put on incorruption. The mortal must put on immortality. This is the promise that we have from our Lord Jesus Christ, that when he returns, we receive this body, this body that has been so affected by sin right now, that is so um, familiar with suffering and pain and sorrow, trials and tribulation. This all goes away when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. And so this brings us to a fourth important truth that we hold on to between now and then. Our full redemption, spiritually, physically, the totality of our restoration that's coming one day, this is an integral part of God's original plan that he announced in the garden. Verse 24 says, For in this hope, referring to this, this future resurrection, this redemption, this adoption, this glorification that we will receive one day. For in this hope, we were saved. <coughs> Excuse me. There is a purpose behind our salvation. There's a purpose why God is redeeming us from this sin that we have been indwelt with and born with. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember in the garden, as he's talking to Adam and Eve, and he gives them the creation mandate, right? They name all the animals. They, they are to do their work the earth. But there's a key part of this mandate that God gave them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with the image of God. Why is God doing this work in us, and why is he going to bring it to perfect completion? Because God's original plan will come about. This world, one day, when Jesus makes all things new at his return, you and I and our perfected bodies, no longer struggling with sin, no longer struggling with pain and death and disease, all these things are destroyed. What will happen is this, this entire world will be filled with the image of God and God's creation plan that he revealed in the garden will finally be fulfilled. Church, that's our destiny. It's a glorious destiny. And God says, hold on to this as you suffer, let it encourage you. You know, verse 24 ends with a word that many of us struggle with. The word is patience. You know, I've often told people uh, when they say, you know, I need more patience. Pray that I'll have more patience. I'll say, no, you don't want to pray for more patience, man. You know, because when you pray for patience, the Bible tells us, well, it's tribulation that works and brings about patience. But we need it, right? It's hard to be patient as we wait for this promise to be fulfilled, especially when we suffer as we wait. And this is another reason, yet another reason, why we need the Holy Spirit's help with suffering. It's another reason why we have to rely upon Him. And the final application in this passage touches on this. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You know, let me, let me stop right there for just a moment. That word us is important. Paul is talking to men and women and young people who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They are followers of Christ. 
And so what he's taught, saying here applies to those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I have no doubt there's people here this morning, <clears throat> you may have walked into our church, and one of the reasons why you walked in is because your life is in turmoil. It's in trouble. You're experiencing confusion and pain and difficulty, suffering perhaps, and you're looking for help. Maybe God can help. Well, guess what? He can help. And this passage tells us that he gives us the Holy Spirit, but that only comes about when we first trust in Jesus Christ. If you want the help of God, it doesn't start by living a good life and cleaning up your act. It starts by recognizing how absolutely dependent you are upon Christ that there's no way you can earn his help and his salvation. It starts by recognizing that we're sinners, that we need a rescuer, someone to deliver us from our sin. This is how it starts. For you to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, helping you, first must come the bending of the knee to Jesus, the acknowledgement that you're a sinner and that your only hope is to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But the good news is, is that when you commit your life to Christ, Something miraculous happens, something mystical. I mean, we can't explain it. But God says, when you commit your life to Christ, immediately I am going to give you the great gift of the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is, he comes and he takes up residence in our lives. And he begins one massive restoration project. And he's going to rebuild our lives. And that's what he's doing to every Christian that you know. And sometimes you see them fall and you see them sin and you see them do things. And you go, what? I thought they were a Christian. Understand, they are a work in progress. I'm up here bringing you the word of God, but guess what? I am a work in progress. I sinned this week. If you don't believe me, ask my wife, right? Ask my sons. Ask the people I work with. No, don't ask them, okay, but, right? <laughs> I'm a work in progress. And as you look around this building, every Christian you see is a work in progress. The Holy Spirit is building them into something new. And it's going to be completed when Christ returns. And that can be the testimony of your life. And this Spirit, who has promised to help us in our weakness is one of the many gifts that we receive when we trust in Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to give you eternal life. And that doesn't mean that we just avoid the, the punishment and wrath of God in hell. That means that right now, he takes up residence and he begins to change us. Listen, if that's you this morning, um, I want to encourage you, come talk to me after the service. Go to our care center over here to my right and your left. And there'll be people there who can pray with you, who can open the scriptures. They can help you so that even today could be your day of salvation. And you'll experience this baptism, this filling of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sixth application. 
Until Christ returns, the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can maturely embrace suffering. You know, one of the great privileges, excuse me, that we have as sons and daughters of God is that we have 24-7, 365 access to the very throne room of God himself, especially in our times of suffering. Yet in the midst of suffering, we often don't enjoy this access because we share a common weakness. And this weakness that Paul talks about in verse 26, this weakness centers on prayer. And this is one of the most important ways that the Holy Spirit helps us in our suffering. There's several specific ways that the Holy Spirit will help us in our prayer life so that we can ultimately embrace suffering and see it accomplish its intended work. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit helps us with how to pray. Now, you think, wait a second, I know how to pray. I open my mouth. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those times in your life when you say to yourself, how can I pray when I'm so angry or disappointed with what God has done here? How do I pray when I don't understand why something is happening? Sometimes, and I've experienced this, I told you in the first sermon on this little series of what happened to me in 1994, when my son got his diet, I was so angry at God. I was so disappointed with God. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to talk to him. I was angry and I was disappointed in God. These are real predicaments. And we can't gloss over them. Some of us, we have to start right here. And we have to allow the Holy Spirit to unmask the idolatries of our hearts that cause that kind of reaction to God. The reason why I was angry and disappointed with God is my life was filled with false gods that I was trusting in and relying upon instead of Jesus Christ. There are all these things that I was looking to for my significance and my security and for my comfort and assurance and my identity other than Jesus Christ. And so we have to start right there and allow the Holy Spirit to unmask these idolatries and to address our anger at God and our disappointment with Him. In other words, the Holy Spirit helps us to get to the point where we actually want to pray. Some of you may have never experienced that, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because of that hurt, you take that hurt out on God. But this is why all the previous verses in chapter 8 are so important. All the things that we've looked at from the very beginning that teach us that our life in the Spirit and why they're so important, right? You go back to the very beginning, the very first message that Randy brought us from chapter 8, right? We see how the Holy Spirit enables us to obey the law of Christ and to enjoy and rest in our acceptance and identity in Him. Right? And then you move on and you see how the Holy Spirit empowers us against sin so that we can subdue it 
and live in a way that honors to God. And then you come to verses 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 where it's the Holy Spirit who assures us of our adoption and of our future and of our place in the home and the family of God so that we can now realize I'm not going through suffering because God is mad at me and he's angry at me and he doesn't love me or that he's abandoned me, no. And it brings us all the way up to what we just talked about. The Holy Spirit is actually that guarantor of God's love and goodness to us. He's the foretaste of all that we are going to experience. So this this comes into play. All of this comes into play when we're conflicted and confused. The Holy Spirit helps us with how to pray, how to even get to the point of prayer. Secondly, the Holy Spirit helps us to know what to pray for. I mean, do I pray for deliverance? Is it selfish of me to pray for deliverance from this, from this suffering? Do I pray for relief? Do I pray for more strength? Do I pray for insight? Do I ask him to end this suffering, kind of like Paul did in 2 Corinthians? Or, or what do I pray for? You see, part of the issue is that we have limited knowledge, right? We don't know what God is up to. Is this suffering because he's trying to do a work in my life and sanctify me and and turn me into the person that he wants me to be? Or is this suffering in my life because God is actually working on someone else and I'm just, I'm an instrument in his hands that he's going to use to bring someone else to Christ? I mean, which one is it? Or is it both, right? We often don't know what to pray for. John Stott writes that, indeed, true Christian prayer is impossible without the Holy Spirit. It is he who causes us to cry, Abba, Father, when we pray. Prayer is in itself an essentially Trinitarian exercise. It is access to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. The inspiration of the Spirit is just as necessary for our prayers as the mediation of the Son. We can approach the Father only through the Son and only by the Spirit. I referred to Apostle Paul a few months ago. You know, he, uh, he experienced this. In 2 Corinthians, we read that he prayed several times for God to remove the thorn in his flesh, the suffering that he was going through, this affliction that he had. This is what he was praying for. But guess what? God didn't answer his prayer. He wouldn't give him what he wanted. He answered his prayer, but the answer was not what Paul was wanting to hear. The answer was not yes. The answer was no. Now, for some of us, namely me, (laughs) that may have been an opportunity to get really angry and disillusioned and disappointed with God and go into maybe a spiritual tailspin But the Holy Spirit is there to help that not to occur. To help us instead, like the Apostle Paul, to change the focus of our prayer. No longer are we praying for deliverance from this suffering. Instead, we're asking for the grace that we need for God to use it for His glory, for our good, for His kingdom. And this is exactly what Paul saw happen to him. 
He stopped praying for deliverance, and instead he prayed for grace because God says, my grace is sufficient for you, and in this weakness, I am going to reveal my strength through you for the benefit of others and for the kingdom of God, and I'll give you the grace to embrace this suffering. This happens because of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives. He helps us to know what to pray for. And then finally, third way he helps us, the Holy Spirit helps us when we don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit helps us with how to pray. The Holy Spirit helps us know what to pray for. And the Holy Spirit helps us when we don't know what to say. As one author put it, we find ourselves at times brought to silence by the very intensity of our longings. There are times in our lives when the pain is so real, so significant, so tangible, so heavy, we don't have the words to say. Like creation, we sigh. We groan under the weight of what we're experiencing. And the great news of this passage is that in those times, the Holy Spirit takes our groans and our sighs and He intercedes for us in this moment of pain. I think it was John Murray who said, right now, Jesus Christ is interceding for us in the throne room of God. And right now, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us in the theaters of our hearts. And so God is clear about this church. He understands prayers which are sighed rather than said. And this is solely due to the ministry of the Holy Spirit Spirit on our behalf. And so whatever you're carrying this morning, the pain, the suffering, it may be heavy to you. You may not even have the words to say You don't have to say a thing. You can sit in silence with your Holy Spirit and you can just groan and sigh. And he works this out for our good and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be our experience this week. Heavenly Father, some of us right now, we we can relate to this. We have heavy hearts. Others, are in a time of life where they're going through great blessings. And in both extremes, we need your grace, we need your spirit at work in our lives to help us. But especially, Father, those who are suffering, may your spirit be at work. May you help us so that we can pray. May you you unmask the idols of our hearts, the things that we love more than you in this time of suffering, would you bring us to the point where we can actually pray with integrity and sincerity? Lord, would you do that work in our hearts? God, would you help us to pray? And right now, Lord, help us to pray for our church. Help us to pray for families in our church. Help us to pray for our community that is broken by sin. Lord, help us to pray for City Fest, Lord, would you bring about a great harvest of new people into the kingdom of God who see their lives changed by the gospel? God, would you help us to pray? And when we are weak and we may not want to pray, 
where we're discouraged, would you strengthen us? Would you give us the grace that we need to turn to you and say, Abba, Father, Daddy. In your name we pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.